But we need to actually talk about something super important, like really super important. Okay. Okay. Shoot, I gave away the ruse because I overemphasize the importance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're, you, you know, when I'm trying to talk about something important, I'm just trying to like sneak it in. Yeah. But when it's, when it's, okay. Anyway, the important topic of the day is how dare you go on our TikTok looking that beautiful? The, the video that you posted today with the outfit? Tracy. Oh, I love that. First of all, thank you so much. You're so sweet. Same to you with your blush high up on your cheek thing. I love that for you. You don't look like you're dying from a fever. What is the point? Continue. Right? That <laughs> outfit was um, based – it was the skirt. It was entirely around the skirt. And that skirt was given to me by my sister Jamie. And it has strong 60s, like, mini skirt corduroy – vibes is it yours to keep or is it temporary it's mine to keep it's mine to okay keep. okay okay <laughs> um and i couldn't i need to do laundry because i couldn't find any of my 800 black turtlenecks to wear with it and do like black turtleneck corduroy skirt vibe so i did a black sweater so it is very obvious that i have reached the point that i that i desperately need laundry because i am officially wearing cute outfits and like it's a global oh God, pandemic so it's supposed to be comfy <laughs> clothes <laughs> That's what happened today. <laughs> the other day I wore a skirt and like everything about my being was like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? The other time that I needed to do laundry, I just went out and bought more sweatpants. Wow, that's powerful. Powerful or or big sad, um, I think are two sides of the same coin with a thin line between them. <laughs> I'm thinking of all the mythological characters that are, like, quote-unquote powerful and now just, like, adding Big Sad instead. Big Sad. (laughs) What is power if not being Big Sad? (laughs) Being Big Sad and doing not one single thing to help it. No. You do one thing to help it. You buy more sweatpants. Wow. I can tell that I miss Pennsylvania because I'm like, you know what would help a Big Sad? A blizzard. And I don't mean the mm. weather. Mm. Dairy Queen. Dairy Queen ice cream. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've talked about this before, but a blizzard is a concrete. It's one of those overly thick milkshakes that has the candy of your choice hidden inside, but really it's all at the gosh darn bottom. Mm-hmm. You got to earn it. You got to work your way down there. You really do. I, uh, you got, you got to earn the redemption from your big sad. <laughs> Those Reese's chunks are not going to excavate themselves. Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. Okay, I have one thing to help you a little bit with the big sad, and it's not Reese's cups. Um, It is a message from a listener that just made my day that I have to share with you, and I thought you could share some of your thoughts with the listeners. Wait, okay, edit undo. I'm not Rowan Hall yet. Okay, 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 go, go, go. I want to hear the good thing. (laughs) We got a message from a listener named Lucy who sent the sweetest message talking about being a fan of our podcast, which we always love, and asking for beginner's books on mythology, specifically interested in paranormal, cryptozoology, and um, anything, really anything mythological, especially kind of Celtic and Roman. Wait, hold up. This is a person we don't know? (laughs) This is a person we don't know who said that they live in 
the UK <gasps> in the oldest town in the UK. Wait, hold up. So history is just all around them. Another person from across the vast wide ocean <laughs> wrote to us to say nice things. Like they took time out of their own day. Uh, this, no, Tracy, this is power. <laughs> <laughs> this is power. And of course, reading that, my brain short circuited. And I was like, well, Cersei, Cersei book about mythology, a good book. Read Cersei book, please. And Wait, then nothing. I got so this. I got this. I got this. Let me dash out of the room to my personal library of mythology. <laughs> She's running, y'all. There she goes. Okay. <laughs> you guys can't see the stack of books Rowan just slammed down <laughs> and the grin that's on her face. A stranger wrote to us to say nice things. I'm giddy. Okay. So my number one collection of myths that I love because it was very influential on my childhood. And, that you know, this is a book that is marketed to children, but boy, is it a little old for children. Um, <laughs> it is Sam McBratney's Celtic Myths. All of these will be on our website under our book recommendations tab. If you want a book that's like a little dated, and by a little dated, I mean like like pre-current feminism, but still so cool. Um, that would be the Women's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets by Ooh. Barbara G. Walker. And listen, if you can just take things with a grain of salt and be like, ah, it is 2021 now. This is a great place to start with these things because it is a it is a ride. And it, this book, like you could use it to um hurt a um specifically male person if they assaulted you so that's always nice to have around always good to have um oh and oh god i have so many oh i'm gonna i'm gonna pick um if you want the most basically basic of like perfect intro books we're gonna go with the illustrated book of myths tales and legends of the world retold by neil phillip it's a really great place to start if you're like what myth do i want to look at more because it's gonna just give you like a spicy little nip we love of, a good nip of a lot of different myths and um i'm gonna recommend this book because you said that you're living in england and I read this book when I traveled to England, and it's one of my faves. It is Fairies. Um, it's by Brian Froud and Alan Lee, and it's kind of – it's a little pricey now um, because the illustrations have become very popular. But listen, if you want some spooky UK critters, you that is, is, that is mm, chef's kiss. And then, Tracy, who wrote The uh, Forgotten Princesses? Because – like, that's the move. Forgotten Princesses is a series that we have used many times on this podcast, and it is by Sophie Jordan. 10 out of 10 out of 10 out of 10 on that one. I feel like all those recommendations were like good little tastes. Some of them are kind of marketed to children. A lot of myth things are marketed to children, which is like weird to me. Um, not the least reason being that some of them are gory as heck. I think because a lot of people kind of associate mythology and uh, fairy tales and folklore all as kind of the same thing. Right. So you sanitize it and hand it to children and it's a story. Yeah. There are a lot of really great books, though. Fictions, retellings of myths that are coming out. 
Uh, I'm reading Song of Achilles right now, which is also by Madeline Miller, and it's amazing. But we have a whole recommendations page on our website. Lucy, write to us more. Thank you. Oh, also, I am now officially Rowan Hall. (laughs) (laughs) And I am officially Tracy Harrison. And this is the Willing and Fable podcast, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the entire world so fascinating. And if you, dear listener, would like to support us, you can subscribe, leave us a review, support us on Patreon, check out our merch at willingandfable.com, or you can just stand by the ocean and whisper our name onto the wind as the salty air gently kisses your cheek in a soft caress. Alternatively, you can just continue listening to our episodes, but no matter what you do, we're happy to have you. Wait, are we going to get one of those every time now? I love this. Oh, yeah, that's my new thing. Yeah, I want a little bit of uh, Welcome to Night Vale vibes. It's my goal. Oh, I'm not super, super familiar with Night Vale, so that's... I love that. <laughs> it's a very good podcast. What if actual power isn't big sad? What if actual power is, wait for it, whisper it, happiness? <laughs> it's too powerful. Too powerful. you crossed over into too powerful speaking of happiness and people that make us happy hey new patron cody c we're so happy to welcome you to the willing and fable family um which is legally not a cult by the way for tax reasons um thanks for being the reason that we get to keep podcasting and thanks for joining us on discord it is super fun to have you you came in hot and we love it (laughs) (laughs) yes very much so So, speaking of Big Happy, Tracy, you taught me last episode that having a a dice sponsor for the podcast means that that is an excuse to talk about our D&D characters, which is very fun. Yeah, 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 100%. So, in honor of Greenleaf Geek Dice being our springtime sponsor, I'm going to need you to talk about Phaedra, who might be my favorite character you've ever created. Oh, my God. Okay, so Dr. Phaedra Martin, whose name was originally just supposed to be a joke. She was supposed to be called Doc Martin. Why are you like this? I did not think of that. (laughs) No, because she very quickly became um, either just Phaedra or the good doctor was what we called her. Or sometimes Fei-Fei as a joke. How do I describe Dr. Phaedra Martin? Let's see if I can do her voice. I haven't done it in a long time. Dr. Phaedra Martin thought she was the (laughs) smartest person in any room she entered and was absolutely the worst. The fact that anyone in the party even tolerated her, let alone liked her, was unbelievable. She was the worst. But I I just want to say, like, Tracy is so skilled at this. She wasn't like a character who just came in and wrecked everyone's day and like used it as an excuse to like not go to therapy like tracy makes characters that are the worst at npcs but supportive of characters just in a sassy way (laughs) she just thought she was the smartest person in every room would like mouth off to ancient deities made a deal with the god of chaos to become a lich couldn't understand why people didn't see that as a good thing and never ever read a room correctly once Never. Like, ask questions when she really needed to stay quiet and stayed quiet when she really should have been asking questions. 
Yeah, I uh, I love that sweet baby. Okay, which dice would you use if you were going to resurrect Phaedra? Absolutely. The Labradorite dice with the slightly green to gray to silver with a little bit of glitter on it. That is Phaedra alchemy dice perfection. Oh, sweet baby alchemist, we miss you, but you know what? We have dice to commemorate your existence. We do. <laughs> and she's not dead. That campaign just wrapped up. She's dead. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> she's a lit. She's actually technically undead. In a pocket dimension, right? She has a pocket dimension where she keeps her phylactery that ties her soul to this world. Oh, you know what? I'm going to say this because that campaign is over and it is safe for me to say it because you are only on a computer screen far away from me. The day, one of the days you couldn't make it to that campaign and we were playing, my character, uh, Divinity, who I was playing kind of a, a Frankenstein-esque, Frankenstein's monster-esque character, um, I stole one of Phaedra's books. <laughs> and Phaedra never found out. And I, to the whole party, I was like, snitches get stitches. <laughs> like, I'm a barbarian. Don't mess with me. <laughs> so last week when I said that in our most recent campaign, your character totally won against my character. This is the example of that, everyone. Divinity was just brute force and literally sat on top of Phaedra one time when they were arguing and won the argument. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, we're just geeking out about our characters because it is so fun to be a D&D player and we are just over the gosh darn moon to be sponsored by Greenleaf Geek who makes handmade custom dice, has the coolest curated dice collection. You guys know that my ride or die dice are my Medusa dice from Greenleaf Geek. Mm -hmm. If you want to go shopping for your own Dice Goblin Horde, visit greenleafgeek.com or head to Greenleaf Geek on Instagram and Twitter. And please do not forget to use the code FABLE, that's F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order. Some restrictions apply. Please do it. We want Leah to know we're cool if you go shopping. We like when people think we're cool. Speaking of D&D, we have a very cool announcement. Kaylee Bray, the woman who I am always playing tabletop games with and who puts up with my myriad of D&D questions and who is absolutely one of the best storytellers we know, the Kaylee Bray is going to be on our podcast Next week as a guest host. We're so, <laughs> so, so excited. She is going to be teaching us the story of Bluebeard, but she promised us that we will have some outrage, which is always exciting. And we're, oh, no. <laughs> we're so spoiled that she is coming on our podcast and, and researching and as enthusiastic as she is, we are just overjoyed to have her. Kaylee's the best. She writes the most amazing campaigns and one-shots. A mutual love of fairy tales is actually one of the reasons that we really became as close as we are. We're so excited. Everyone needs to get themselves a job where you can just hang out and tell stories with your friends. That's my two cents. That really is what this podcast <laughs> was made for. So the lovely, illustrious, transfixing Kaylee Bray will be on Willing and Fable for the next episode. Anyway, today... We will be talking about trickster gods. Uh, these characters often operate outside the framework of right or wrong. They typically ignore the rules of society altogether. In mythology, their actions, while 
often childish and greedy and hurtful and cruel, can also be friendly and helpful and, dare I say it, even wise. While the trickster might appear to be childish, clumsy, clownish, or even play the role of fool at times, their real secret is that they usually possess amazing powers. Some tricksters are even creator gods whose actions help explain how the world came into being. This character is seen all over the world and thus many cultures have tales of the trickster. We will be sharing two of those tales with you today, starting with Rowan. Mm, I've been wanting to do this episode for a minute. I am covering Anansi today, and I think we actually devised this episode so I could have an excuse mm-hmm. to cover Anansi. Um, okay, so actually, Tracy, I don't think you know this. When I was very little, one of the foundational picture books in my family was Zomo the Rabbit, a trickster god from West Africa by Gerald McDermott. Um, I can't recommend that book highly enough, by the way. My family gives it and all the other books from that collection to any of our friends who are having kids. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's this collection of different stories stories from around the world and a lot of the gods are trickster gods uh Mm -hmm. he actually does have an anansi book i just haven't read it which is funny (laughs) the only exposure i've had to anansi is through reading anansi boys by neil gaiman and american gods that's about it yeah so most people's experience with anansi is american gods obviously anansi boys was kind of a sequel to that world. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the star show, Orlando Jones plays Mr. Nancy, who is the character. Mm-hmm. You can't he miss him. He such a good job. Oh, my God. I know. Orlando Jones just acted his butt off in that role. I actually stopped watching that series, but I did watch for him. Oh, I'm caught up. I love – I enjoy the series, but continue. So this book, Zomo – it's based on a Nigerian trickster tale that follows that structure of, like, you must accomplish multiple challenges to get your reward or goal. And in this story, Zomo goes to Sky God to ask for wisdom. And to get it, he must get the scales from Big Fish, milk from Strong Cow, and a tooth from Leopard. And it is a super funny story. And that is what started my love of trickster gods and myths where, you know, you are given impossible tasks and you have to kind of be clever enough to get mm. to the end of it. So luckily for me, trickster tales are just every gosh darn place. So, Kwaku Anansi, or simply Anansi as he is often known, especially in modern media, is my topic today. And he is known throughout West Africa and the Caribbean due to the Atlantic slave trade. Originally, Anansi is the Akan folktale character uh, from the Ashanti people in Ghana. And the Akan are a meta-ethnicity, which is a phrase that I was not really familiar with until I researched this. Yeah, I don't know that I could give you an easy definition of it. Turns out it's because it's a fairly new phrase that's mostly used in academic literature. Um, Mm, Fun. 
Quote, it describes a level of commonality that is wider and more general than ethnicity, but does not necessarily correspond to and may actually transcend nation or nationality. In this case, folks in present-day Ghana and Ivory Coast are often, though certainly not always, linked by the Akan language. Hmm, okay. The word Anansi translates to spider, and Anansasem is the phrase spider stories that describes the accumulation of the many tales of his adventures. Despite his very specific name, Anansi can change into many forms. A spider, a human, a fox, a rabbit, or even a man-spider combo. <laughs> oh, just, oh, no thank you. There's a very cool story where Anansi is kicked by a king, and he splits in two, and that is originally where his spider form comes from. Anansi is greedy, He's a cunning schemer, and he always wants what he doesn't have. He's ruthless and shrewd in outsmarting his enemies. But his tales often are moral lessons, and they result in him receiving his comeuppance. Ooh, not something you always see. Yeah, it's not every single story, but it is It is often enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Mythology.net describes him as, quote, the king of stories, the trickster, the joke maker, and the teacher of those who would follow these traditions. Anansi can be summoned by those with a gift for stories, either to listen to a well-told tale or to help someone who is talented but just beginning to become a master storyteller. I couldn't love him anymore. (laughs) I know. I... (laughs) I love that he's not just a, a mean prankster. It's in, He's interested in those who can tell stories and want to follow traditions as well. Yeah, I think that that quote really shows a bit of his wise side. Like we said, mm-hmm. many trickster gods have that. And Anansi often has the answers that no other god or mortal could provide because his wily ways kind of make him more attuned to the truth. Um, He is part of cautionary tales. He thinks quickly and out of the box, and it makes him a figure to emulate at times. And I think that the way that I'm describing him, you know, those things are so true of so many trickster gods. Definitely. And that's part of what makes this whole genre really exciting. Yeah, you love the character who's charismatic and cunning, and you see that so much more, you know, in modern media. You you think of Loki, obviously, iconic trickster god. Everyone's obsessed with him from the Marvel fandom. Right. Rightly so. Tom Hiddleston does a great job playing him. He's very charming and cunning and all of that. But it's so different from the stereotypical strong hero. And people are leaning more towards getting excited by those characters, at least more openly than media allowed them to for a long time. I also feel as if a lot of trickster gods are really strongly connected with either big sad or like big giddy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The god I'm talking about today is very much associated with being very happy. That's like his thing. And it's kind of the happiness that revels in the happiness even existing. Like, there's Mm -hmm. this joy to be taken from joy itself. It's not like contentment. It's like 
dancing. There's a, there's yes. a lot of like you know a lot of dancing, dancing, a lot of living in the moment, a lot of partying, a lot of celebration. Yeah, absolutely. The the Gotham covering is all about that. Yeah, Anansi not so attuned to the big sad, but other trickster gods often are. Mm-hmm. So Anansi. His stories really vary, but he is usually considered to be the son of the Sky Father, Niame. Uh, his mother is Aseaseya, which is the Earth. He and his wife, who had various names depending on the region, have many, many children. But Nitikuma is his most famous son, as he is present in one of the Spider God's adventures. Ooh. Despite the fact that he is a trickster god... In the 1983 book, The Akan Trickster Cycle, Myth or Folktale, by Yanka Kwesi, it points out that Akan's spirituality does not assert that Anansi should be worshipped to the same extent that many trickster gods are in African and other polytheistic regions. He is connected to the sacred world, but it is less relevant to his importance in Akan society. Within the New World, the Americas, his association with other trickster gods seems to have garnered him a higher status, but this is a point that is debated either way. Mm. Okay. I'm just going to read you a couple description titles of stories that involve Kwaku Anansi because... I, they really make me grin. So Okay, I'm excited. How he shared wisdom. How his body grew, but his head shrunk. How <laughs> jealousy and diseases came to the tribe. How he became bald. Why he can run on the surface of water. How he tied the tiger. Why he and the roach are enemies. And here's my favorite. <laughs> quote, why men commit evil at night. Children play in moonlight, disputes are settled in daytime, and Anansi is Niame's messenger. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a but, lot goes on in that one. There are a lot more, uh, but today I'm going to tell you how Anansi bought Sky God's stories for the world. There are quite a few versions of this story, including a wide variety of challenges and solutions that he faces throughout this journey. I simply chose the version I'm about to tell because it was the one that I first heard as a kid. Okay. There are two particularly important sources for my knowledge of this tale. One is Rattray's Akana Shanti Folktales, which is a book that many, many people have used as their first source for later adaptations of this tale. And then, of course... One of Tracy's and my favorites, the YouTube channel Extra Credits, does a really great job telling a version of this tale. It has really cute animations. If you have kids, 10 out of 10 recommend showing them this mm -hmm. video. Their mythology playlist is so good. I really like what they do with the stories because they make them family friendly without taking all the content out. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you get the, the kid-friendly versions of stories and you hear them and you're like, wait, what actually happened? Oh, yeah. A lot of times <laughs> with Greek mythology where it's like, and then the two lived happily ever after. And it's like, that's not even – they – no. And then Zeus turned into a swan and kissed Leta and everything was amazing. <laughs> oh, ouch. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> At the beginning of their video, Extra Credits 
gives a quote that it just rocked my boat. And it's that myths are not stories that are untrue. Rather, they are tales that don't fit neatly into the historical record, which serve as a foundation to a culture. Mm -hmm. We talk about this all the time, but those guys just said it so well. So well. Perfectly. All right. You ready? I am ready. In the beginning, the world was filled with stories. But all of the stories were owned by Niame, the sky god. The clever spider Anansi, who wanted to know many things and tell many tales, decided he would gain access to Niame's collection. So he spun a silken web up to the sky and asked, Father, may I buy all the stories of the world? Originally, Sky God said no. He liked to look upon his wealth of stories and felt no compulsion to share them. But then he reconsidered. Perhaps he knew that this moment was the beginning of a very interesting tale indeed. Niame said, If you want my Sky God stories, you must bring me the most dangerous beasts of the world. Onini the python, Osebo the leopard, the Umuboro hornets, and the fairy Moatia. Anansi laughed and offered to bring Niame the most dangerous beast, his own mother, as well. The brave spider climbed down his web, scheming all the while, and by the time he reached the earth, he had a plan. Grabbing his wife, the pair stood outside the bush where Onini lived, and they pretended to argue about the length of the massive python. The pair spoke as loudly as they could manage until the snake slithered out from his home, hissing about the racket. To stop the snake from striking... Anansi showed the python a fallen palm trunk and said they were fighting about whether or not Onini could possibly be as long as the tree. The python was proud and asserted that he was a great and powerful snake, so of course he was as long as the palm. Anansi vigorously agreed, while his wife Aso shrugged, unimpressed. So the spider suggested the snake stretch out alongside the fallen palm to prove himself. No matter how much Onini stretched, his body would always begin to coil before he could slither to his full length. So when Anansi slyly suggested it, the python gladly agreed to being tied to the palm with the spider's web so that he could prove once and for all that he was quite long indeed. Thus, clever Anansi delivered Onini the python to Sky God, tied to a tree and hissing in anger. That night, Anansi went to the home of Osebo the leopard and dug a pit just out of reach of the massive cat's bed. The spider disguised it with brush and slunk away, laughing all the while. The next morning, Anansi was awoken by the thunderous growls of Osebo trapped in his pit. The leopard was so mad that his angry calls carried far and wide. So Anansi went up to the hole and said, my friend, oh, Sabo, have you been drinking again? How did you end up in this hole? The leopard was ashamed to be brought so low. But when he offered, Osebo accepted the small spider's help. Anansi lowered his web to the cat, who began to use it to crawl out of the trap. But the web was sticky, 
and every time he struggled up, the silken thread wrapped around him more and more. Anansi was particularly proud to deliver Osebo the leopard from the pit and present him, twined in spider silk, to the laughing sky god. Next, Anansi had to come up with a way to trick the Umaboro hornets before they could wise up and sting him. Anansi got a gourd and stopper from his wife for this plan. Then, on his way to their nest, he cut a banana leaf from a tree and filled it with water. First, he soaked himself through. Then, he took the remaining water and splashed it high, dousing the hornet's nest and sending them rushing out in anger. Anansi raised his hands before they could sting. My friends, it has been raining, as you can see, because I, too, am soaked with water. I believe it will rain again soon, and harder even than before. The hornets relaxed their fearsome stingers and drifted closer to the smiling spider. I brought this nice, warm gourd so that you may all fly in and stay dry while it rains. Perhaps we may repair your nest once the storm passes. The hornets did not see clouds in the sky above, but they knew Anansi the spider had eight eyes, and they themselves had only five. So one by one, they flew inside the gourd. Anansi could hardly contain his grinning when the last one entered. He quickly plugged the gourd with the stopper. Then the spider made sure to rattle the container with every step up the web to Sky God. So he presented the Muboro hornets to Niame with the gourd shaking from their buzzing anger. Now the tricky spider must face his last and most difficult challenge yet. The fairy Moatia was clever and not to be trifled with, so he was prepared to do more work than he had for any of the other dangerous beasts. Anansi began by carving an Akua doll. Collecting the sap from a gum tree, he covered his creation until it was impossibly sticky. Then he drafted his wife Aso to help him put some Ito, or mashed yams, into a basin that the doll could hold in its lap. With his doll and food prepared, Anansi set off to the land of fairies. The spider placed the Akua doll in front of an odom tree, a place where fairies often congregated. He needn't wait very long before Moatia appeared, attracted by the Ito as he knew she would be. Not realizing the doll was a trick, the fairy asked if she may have some of the Ito. Anansi, hiding high above in the tree, used his spider silk to puppet the doll, giving the head a quick nod. So Moatia gladly devoured the snack, as fairies are wont to do. When she gratefully thanked the Akua doll, Moatia was surprised when her companion neither spoke nor nodded at her gratitude. So, petulant fairy that she was, Moatia slapped the doll. Her hand stuck fast to the gum sap. Even more mad at being stuck, she slapped the mysterious figure again. This time, she found both of her arms locked in the doll's gooey embrace. Enraged, she threw her whole body against the figure. Well, now she was stuck for good. When Anansi appeared, cutting the silk he'd used to puppet the doll, he grinned at Moatia. 
Were you blind with hunger or a fool from the start? Then he laughed and sang the whole way up his web to the sky, carrying the fairy Motia to Niame. Sky God was overjoyed to see Anansi returning victorious. It wasn't every day that a creature surpassed his expectations with such cleverness. Though he must now share his collection of stories with Anansi, Niame was grateful to have this new tale to add to his personal collection. As Anansi's boldness taught him, sharing a story does not mean losing its wealth. It means gathering even more. So as a reward, Niame presented Anansi with the gift of renown, something he knew the trickster would find particularly sweet. I once possessed all the stories of the world, Sky God began. I shared them with no one, and no one could share them with me. No longer will they be known as Sky God stories. Now they are Anansisem. Spider stories for all to hear. Anansi grinned and danced his eight-legged jig. He had a thought of creating a book of this collection of tales. He would rewrite each story so that he was the hero of every one. I hope you are as quick as you are clever, my small friend, Niame said. The spider looked up at Sky God confused. If you do not want the next tale to be that of the death of Anansi, at the hands of Onini the python, Osebo the leopard, the Mboro hornets, and the fairy Moatia, you'd better run fast. <laughs> okay, I loved that telling of the story. It was like the perfect bedtime story like the, the way it was told was like so cohesive like you can see the inspiration from the children's book also anansi is now officially the god of sick burns <laughs> <laughs> i love anansi so much and to credit zomo the rabbit and how much that inspired mm -hmm. me one of the big lines in that because he makes basically the same mistake that anansi makes he goes on a very similar journey sky god does say to zomo you'd better run fast because all those predators are now after him. And I just had to, like, do that little nod. Um, so good. So, so good. Yeah, I I just love these journeys. I just love these journeys where a character's like, ha I am the most clever. And then in the end, they're like, ooh, that was a bad call. <laughs> yes. If you like those kinds of stories, something we definitely have to cover on the podcast sometime is Journey to the West, which is a 16th century... Uh, Ming Dynasty story. Mm. It's like a classic Chinese literature story, and it has characters, especially the Monkey King, who is just so clever and mischievous and trick trickstery. And it's just we will cover it on the podcast at some point, um, solely so that I can get Rowan to appreciate a new <laughs> exciting trickster god. Researching this story really also made me want to do a dive into. American Tall Tales, the Paul Bunyan genre yeah. of stories mm, oh because they have that feeling to them. The, I'm going to weave you a tale, and, and all the while kind of silly things are happening. They're very moralistic. Yeah. So let's go back to 
The History of Anansi and His Inextricable Link to the Atlantic Slave Trade. Because that mm-hmm. history is a very large part of Anansi's survival through oral tradition. Because Jamaica had the largest concentration of enslaved Ashanti in the Americas, Jamaican versions of his stories are some of the most well-preserved. And I wouldn't stake my life on this, but I think the version that I told would have been set in Jamaica based on the sources that I used and kind of the landscape that was described. Anansi was part of a large oral tradition that existed before the Gold Coast became a prominent locale within the machine of enslaving African peoples. Slavers ensured the continuation of the specifically oral tradition by keeping enslaved people from accessing writing and education and, in some case, other people who spoke their language. Because of the forced migration of enslaved Africans and the sharing and blending of many cultures over time, quote, Anansi is depicted in many different ways with different names, from Anans, Kwaku Anans, and Anansi, to his New World iterations such as Ba Anansi, Kumpa Nansi, and or Nansi Nancy, Aunt Nancy, and Sis Nancy. He's also linked to trickster gods of African origin that don't share his name at all. Mm. So, so going back to Zomo, which is the story of a rabbit, there is a trickster hare that appears in stories from West, Central, and Southern Africa. And as I said, there is a story of Zomo stealing from predators and then the predators chasing after him. This figure is often known as Br'er Rabbit, and his stories are sometimes identical to those of Anansi. Oh. Some of you might know Br'er Rabbit from Joel Chandler Harris's Uncle Remus stories and then the 1946 Disney film Song of the South. And if you're familiar with one or both, you'll know that the presence of a tar baby in those stories is only one of the many indicators that these pieces of media are absolutely saturated with racism and a romanticism of the antebellum South. The spectacular podcast, You Must Remember This, which Tracy and I both love, has episodes on Song of the South and Splash Mountain, where Karina Longworth really does a deep dive on the racist legacy of Uncle Remus, Br'er Rabbit, and so many connected figures within American media I cannot recommend those episodes and that entire show highly enough. The frequency with which I think about those two episodes specifically (laughs) is shocking. While I actually haven't listened to those episodes in particular, I do agree that we cannot recommend You Must Remember This enough. It's such a good podcast. Karina is a researching (laughs) icon. She is an icon of research. Icon deity, queen, everything and everything we want to be. Yeah. So I could never possibly go into either of those pieces of media as well as her. Consider this your recommendation to please, after our episode is done, go listen to those. Um, (laughs) For our purposes, Nina Martyrus, writing for NPR, summarizes the American version of this Br'er Rabbit story. 
Quote, In archetypical trickster tale, the Tar Baby story describes how a fox entraps a rabbit by using a tar figure. The rabbit gets stuck to it in five places. Front and hind feet and head after mistaking it for a real person holding food and pummeling it for not replying to his polite greetings. Trapped, but tactical as always, the rabbit begs the fox to roast, hang, skin, or drown him, but please do not throw him into the briar patch. Of course, the fox does precisely that, hoping to inflict maximum pain on his enemy without knowing that rabbits are born in bread and thickets. The rabbit skips out, as lively as a cricket in the embers, to live another day. The allegorical symbolism, rooted in slavery and its inequalities, is not hard to decipher. The rabbit is the underdog, who constantly has to outwit his more powerful but dim master in order to steal his food to survive. Legally, the food belongs to the, quote, master, but morally, the enslaved have a right to it, too. Quote, the briar pratch, says Brian Wagner, is a symbol of the commons, the unenclosed, unowned land that provides refuge and resources that sustain the life of the community. End quote. So, Brian Wagner, who I just referenced um, mm-hmm. in conjunction with that story above, wrote the book The Tar Baby, A Global History. And he says that this story is, quote, central to our understanding of cultural traditions that slaves brought from Africa to America. The reason Briar Rabbit is on this journey to get food, it's a story of ingenuity and survival that is adapted based on the needs and locale of the people who are telling the tale. I I feel as if that this is a sort of mythological package that can be just historically unwrapped and unwrapped and unwrapped further, especially Mm -hmm. from an American perspective. Unfortunately, it is more difficult to trace than histories that don't involve mass enslavement. But it is a really clear picture of people utilizing stories to their benefit, in many cases to their life-saving benefit. So in that West African version of the tale, the tar baby is a gum doll that holds a plate of yams, like in my story of Anansi. Mm-hmm. Many children's tellings of that Anansi story do not include the doll that is made sticky with the gum sap because of its link to tar babies. Oh, okay. Which makes sense because right. they are rooted in a horrible racist history. I wanted to tell the story with the gum doll first because that story existed before the Atlantic slave trade. Right. It predates the the tar baby version of the story. Right. And I was surprised to hear Brian Wagner refer to tar as, quote, a police technology under slavery. Because when I think of police technology, I think of tasers and modern mm-hmm. technology. But in fact, he's absolutely correct. Frederick Douglass describes one story of tar in his autobiography. Uh, in eastern Maryland, a plantation owner erected a tar fence to keep, quote, hungry swarms of boys as well as older slaves 
out of the property's fruit garden. Douglas points out that chronic hunger made it so hardly any enslaved person, quote, had the virtue or vice to resist it. Mm. The problem was the fence would leave sticky black gunk on the people who climbed it, and they would be brutally whipped for stealing food when anyone saw the sticky evidence that was left on them. Douglas said, The slaves became as fearful of tar as of the lash. They seemed to realize the impossibility of touching tar without being defiled. The food also changes in various tellings of this story. Wagner gave a pretty comprehensive list. He said, In Oaxaca, the dispute is over chili. In a story from what is now Tanzania, concerns a ripened field of dura, or sorghum. A version common across West Africa concerns maize, yams, and beans. But often the resourcing question is not location-specific. Water, for example, is probably the most common resource in dispute. End quote. Mm. I want to recognize again that not all trickster tales from the African continent are the same. That would be absurd. And it probably seems odd for me to constantly connect this story of a trickster spider with a rabbit. But Br'er Rabbit and these trickster rabbit iterations, and a Nazi are linked for a reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're not just getting the common diffusion and blending of stories across continents in the world, which is just people migrating and sharing their tales with one another. We absolutely have to acknowledge that the transatlantic slave trade forced this means of cultural blending. Mm -hmm. The Gilder Lerman Institute of American History reports, quote, over the period of the Atlantic slave trade, from approximately 1526 to 1867, some 12.5 million slaves were shipped from Africa and 10.7 million arrived in the Americas. The Atlantic slave trade was likely the most costly in human life of all long-distance global migrations. It's really wild to see those numbers, especially because in American schools, they always... They always like to frame it as like, here's the date that the slave trade started, and here's the date when it ended, and then there was slavery for a little while, and then it was all over, and racism's been fixed. And so you don't see numbers like that as often and as clearly as I think we should. No, absolutely not. And I, I hope that the version of American history that we were taught, which was just the Industrial Revolution over and over again... Like yeah. the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory constantly. Um, yeah. I hope that that is remedied. And the story of Anansi makes me so incredibly grateful. Because when people are forced together into life or death situations for hundreds of years, no matter how hard slavers try the cultures of those people they enslave don't disappear and we're mm -hmm. very lucky to have stories of anansi and brer rabbit and other trickster gods from those forcibly blended cultures because generations of storytellers who lived all over the globe utilized those tales for fun and for education but also for preservation and that's really right. the only reason that i'm able to tell them at all 
I wanted to specifically compare the Anansi story that I told, which was very bright and happy. It's about a Mm -hmm. spider getting stories, but included that doll that's covered in this sticky gum and trapping someone and how it evolved into this lesson of, you know, there's a reason we don't touch tar and there this is weaponized against us and right right and i think that 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 is just the tip of a much larger iceberg there there's so much to unpack especially in uncle remus stories like we could do 500 podcast episodes on that but in the way that i am excited about anansi i have to remind myself that i only get to be excited about anansi because people made the commitment to keep those stories alive. That's part of what we love about doing this podcast and what we try to also help continue doing is we try to tell the stories as best we can in cultural context and appreciate the stories that aren't, you know, exclusively Zeus or the stories you've heard a million times. Every time, just... Zeus, boo. (laughs) Yeah, screw that guy. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's the reason why Anansi's story about getting the stories from Sky God is such a cool one. It really, like, it makes me giggle, that that tale. Because he's he's very much a trickster god of story. And he, just the idea of a spider spinning a web to crawl up into the sky to win stories is just... It's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. I, it's, I'm so glad you shared that story today, and I'm so glad we finally got you the chance to talk about it. I've been waiting. <laughs> this is. I don't know why. Like, why? Why do we do these things? So many lately, this has kind of been a run of stories that you and I have really wanted to cover. Yes, it's very funny that we've done that to ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been good, and. Uh, the story that I'm going to cover today, I really didn't know much about at all. I don't know a gosh darn thing about yours except for the imagery that's always associated with yeah, this god. That's kind of all I knew. Um, and what I learned, which surprised me, is even though this deity is often described as a trickster god, it's kind of like the least of his things. What? Yeah. Okay. Carved on the face of a rock in Rio Blanco County, Colorado, is the image of a hunched back man playing the flute. This image was carved sometime between 850 and 1100 AD and represents the god Cocopelli. But this ancient image isn't the only place where you can see Cocopelli represented in America. In fact, his image is so popular that even today you can see a giant statue of him outside an Arizona Starbucks. In recent years, a non-phallic version of Cocopelli has been adopted as a broader symbol of the southwestern United States as a whole. I'm sorry. We need to double back. There's a version of him with a huge phallus? That is the original version of him. That is the main version of him. That is the true version of him. As I said, he's less of a trickster god like we think of him now as like a fun, tricky little dude. No, he was a big dick having fertility god. Wow. Wow. That is that is exactly one of those things you hear about in a new age shop where people are like, but before the Christians, all the gods were about fertility. Which is so funny because he's like the symbol of new age in Southwestern America. 
You find yeah. him on keychains, patio decor. There's a bike trail named after him. He's in all new age shops, but it's this sanitized, commercialized version of him sans giant dick. Wow, that's a bummer on so many levels. Keychains perhaps being the worst of it all. <laughs> <laughs> so he was originally depicted with the huge phallus, but the Spanish missionaries in the area convinced the hoppy craftsmen to omit this from the representations of the figures. No. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. yeah. So even before he got sanitized in modern times, it was Spanish missionaries that were like, love this, love what you're doing, love the art, please take away that massively erect penis. <laughs> <laughs> Cocopelli was one of several Kachina dolls sold to tourists, and as with most Kachina dolls, the hoppy Cocopelli was often represented by a human dancer. These dancers apparently had great fun with missionaries and tourists by making obscene and sexual gestures that the foreigners did not understand. You love to see it. <laughs> Anthropologist Eckhart Malotki pointed out in the 2000 book Cocopelli, The Making of an Icon, quote, it seems as if there is no limit to the ways in which the Cocopelli motif can be applied, end quote. This is just really embodying, like, the, just the, like... Big dick energy. No, like the white girl <laughs> Starbucks New Age version of so many gods because there's literally a giant statue of him outside of a starbucks are you joking oh yeah 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 the largest cocopelli statue is now outside of a starbucks in arizona hmm okay mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. i want to okay i want to be cool with this in so many ways one cuz i'm a white girl and i enjoy a starbucks occasionally but i want to distance myself from that for the moment because I want it to be something cool where it's like, oh, look, appreciations for diverse cultures. But it really does feel like the kitchifying of him without. It does. Oh, 100 percent. We will get into that later. But I completely agree. But you might be asking yourself, aside from the kitchifying, why is Coco Pelli so popular? Why is he so popular? Thank you so much. Who is this flute-playing god? Who is this flute-playing god? Great question. Really, just amazing. So, some say... Is the flute a stand-in for a penis? No, it's in addition to. He can't have both. <laughs> oh, he can, and he do. <laughs> Cocopelli is a hunched-back god, but some people say that this hunched-back was actually a bundle where he kept sacred objects, seeds, and songs. As anthropologist Dennis Slifer has pointed out, Cocopelli didn't spring from a single story, but instead is likely the result of a complex merging of various myths, deities, and personalities, and traits that evolved over a period of at least a thousand years. So, kind of like Anansi, he's a mishmash of many cultures, many thousands of years, many stories. Hermanubis, baby. Hermanubis, baby! So, Cocopelli was especially of great importance to the ancient Anasazi, also known as the Ancient Ones. The Anasazi occupied the valleys and plains of the Four Corners region of North America, where Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico meet at the corners. 
They were known for building elaborate pueblos high in the cliffs and etching unique images into the cliff faces and canyons in the area. Though the Hopi story is likely where we get Cocopelli's name from. The name Cocopelli is a Hopi word, roughly meaning wooden-backed, and many depictions of Cocopelli show him with a distinct hunch to his back. His other names are Cocopilau, Cocopele, Ololo Wishkia, Neopukwai, and he even has the nickname Casanova of the Cliff Dwellers. Ooh! This is a lover, not a fighter. I never knew that the hunchback was part of him. I always just assumed he was bending over because he was playing the flute with so much vigor. Yes, modern images, that is 100% like what he looks like. He's just a dude hunched over playing the flute, like jamming out. But original cave paintings, it's much more of a distinct hump. He's still curved over playing the flute, but there's a hump. And many believe that that representation comes from Aztec traders known as Pochteca. These were long-distance traveling merchants of the Aztec empire who famously carried their goods in sacks across their backs. Pochteca or other traders may have even used flutes to announce themselves as friendly when they approached settlements. However, despite the similarities, the origin of this is still in doubt since the first known images of Cocopelli actually predate the major era of trade and the Pochteca by several hundred years. I have to say flutes are a genius way to say, hey, I'm friendly. They sound friendly. Right? They sound friendly. They're happy. It, it's such a smart way to be like, yo, I'm coming, but also I've got cool stuff. Yeah, please don't kill me. <laughs> please don't kill me. I'm a friendly guy. I've got seeds and sacred objects. Okay, here are the new rules. If you're a good guy, like trademark good guy, meaning you actually have to be a good guy, you have to announce yourself with a flute. Or not at all. Mmm, <laughs> <laughs> interesting. I like it. <laughs> I'm sold. <laughs> I'm just going to see a bunch of men walking around with those tiny band cases of flutes. Oh, yeah. Well, flutes, not piccolos. Piccolos are a step too far. Recorders. <sighs> oh, we accept old school, like elementary school recorders. <laughs> Hot cross buns all day, every day. <laughs> Certified good guy. <laughs> That's how you know. Red flags, green flags, those are old news. It's recorders all day, every day, baby. <laughs> twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Back to Cocopelli. So around the same time that he starts appearing in art and petroglyphs, it appears that other male figures, also bearing flutes and phalluses, began to show up in rock art made by the ancestral Puebloan cultures across today's American Southwest. But it's not only men depicted in these petroglyphs. According to an article by Alexa Gotthardt for Artsy, quote, All of these desperate figures represent fertility in an overarching sense. According to most Native American tales, Cocopelli traveled from village to village, conjuring rain and a fruitful harvest with the sound of his flute. His breath powered his instrument, but it also symbolized the wind, which was considered an essential pathway for life, across from which rain, maize, and human life were derived. Cocopelli himself is sometimes depicted with a consort, a woman called Cocopelli Mimi, by the Hopi. Sometimes Cocopelli Mimi is also described as Cocopelli's wife, 
and it is said that Cocopelli can be seen on the full and waning moon, much like the man or rabbit on the moon. I, you, so far, honestly, you've given me no tricks and all, like, really happy, delightful information. It doesn't, I mean, it's pretty delightful the whole time. I'll spoil a little bit. He's not into trick. He just likes a good goof. He really doesn't like mean-spirited tricks. He he thinks, like, stealing your drink when you're not looking or, like, making a bird land on your shoulder is, like, the funniest thing. And that's his form of trickster. Certified good guy. Coco Pelli is a certified good guy. <laughs> I love Coco Pelli. And we need to incorporate more of his, like, good guy big dick energy into his modern representations. Maybe being a certified good guy is the real power. Mm-hmm. I think it is. <laughs> Anansi, I think it god is. of sick burns, and Cocopelli, god of the good guy. God of the good guy. So this god of the good guy presides over reproduction, including that of game animals, and is often depicted with animal companions such as rams and deer. Other common creatures associated with him are snakes, lizards, and even insects. In fact, you're going to hate this, another origin theory of the god is that he's an anthropomorphic insect. The name Cocopelli may be a combination of Coco, another Hopi and Zuni deity, and Peli, the Hopi and Zuni word for the desert robber fly, an insect with a prominent proboscis and rounded back, which is also noted for its zealous sexual proclivities. Sex bug. <laughs> I wonder why there are so many bugs in trickster god stories. I think because, I don't know. I don't know. I was waiting for you to have some deep insight. I I was like, oh, bugs, you know, like they get away, they're sneaky, they're in and out. But I'm like, and then I was going to say, oh, well, you know, you don't see any cute animals. But then there's foxes. So it's like, and rabbits. So I don't know. Can we quickly talk about the fact, I just dropped this low key in my story, but I actually, I do need to talk about it. Did you know hornets have five eyes? No, and I hate it and I don't want to think about it. Oh, okay. Continue with your insect stories then. (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about a different, uh, more recent etymology for the name Cocopelli, which literally means Kachina hump. Because the Hopi were the tribe from whom the Spanish explorers first learned of the god, their name is the one most commonly used. In his domain over agriculture, Cocopelli's flute playing chases away the winter and brings about spring. Many tribes, such as the Zuni, also associate Cocopelli with the rains, and he frequently appears with Payatamu, another flutist, in depictions of maize-grinding ceremonies. Some tribes say he carries seeds and babies on his back and delivers the seeds and the children to women at the harvest each year. (laughs) Your face is so shocked. (laughs) It's not shocked. I'm just excited. He's like a good dad. He's the good dad god of a good time. That's what he's all about. I just... That makes me so excited and so bummed that Spanish missionaries were like, "Mm, sorry. No, no dick for you, my bud. Yeah, that's like his big thing. It's also like, I mean, we're saying it lightly, but it is sad, like full stop, that missionaries, people of other religions are coming around and be like, please edit your God for our comfort. More specifically, please edit your God because we are uncomfortable with human anatomy that is normal. 
Absolutely. It's 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 definitely a squeamish thing from a prudish sort of sense as opposed to just being comfortable with human bodies and human body representation. I heard a story the other day, and I guess I'm going to need maybe you or someone to verify this for me, but I heard that during World War II, Americans airdropped extra large condoms on Russia <laughs> to convince Russians that American men had larger dicks and make them feel inferior. I have heard that as well. I believe it. We did some weird stuff during the wars. I don't know if it's true. I hope that it is. But it, I, it does make me think of this. Like, Spanish missionaries were like, no, 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 there will be none of that big dick energy. Thank you, no. And yeah. we got rid of it. Got rid of it. Just gone. Absolutely gone. And it's fundamental to his story because according to Ellen Lloyd for Ancient Pages, one of the most perplexing parts of Coco Pelli's visits to the villages each year was what happened after they all danced and sang all night. It is said that as soon as Cocopelli left the village in the morning, the crops started to grow and many women were suddenly pregnant. It is said that when Cocopelli plays his flute, it would cause the snow to melt, the grass to grow, and birds to sing. Thus he was known as the god of fertility, agriculture, and a trickster god who hearkened the coming of spring. Referencing the artsy article again, the author states that, quote, Cocopelli's fertility powers extended beyond agriculture, too. The figure's humpback not only represented sacks of seeds, but a way for him to carry the songs he used to attract women. His flute, in particular, symbolized the power to woo. Across many Native American tribes, such instruments were used to create signals and serenades that conjured love magic, according to Slifer, the anthropologist. In some Cocopelli depictions, the god's powerful libido was emphasized, in blunter terms, through the addition of a visible, turgid penis. I tried really, really hard to find a different word for that, but it's a direct quote, so. <laughs> the fact that we didn't put the saint of 5,000 women and Cocopelli in an episode together so that we could really kind of contrast them and, like, the ideas of masculinity is a real bummer for me because there's just so many things going on, like, there's a lot about the male gaze to unpack here, if we're being frank. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. The male ideal of malehood. But also, it's so nice and wholesome that I got to believe that there were a lot of female storytellers that were responsible for continuing his history and making sure his lore was known. Because this man is coming around carrying children playing sweet music. Yes. Yes. In some versions of the story, the maidens of the town, like, are are afraid of Cocopelli, and then in other mm. versions, they eagerly await his arrival. So it just depends on the version. His flute is used to woo. In some versions, he picks a maiden that he spends the night with, and if their union is fruitful, that child will have supernatural powers. I can't believe I've gone this long not knowing about this god. I know. I know. I just thought of him as that, like, trickster god you see statues and pictures of. Like, that's as far as as I knew. And there's, like, nothing about it being a trickster. But I love trickster gods. You know what? He's he's in this episode, and he gets called that. So he's lumped in. I love trickster gods. He loves a good, old-fashioned, little, little friendly joke. I love him. So... Cocopelli possesses the wisdom of age. 
this merry traveler has a lesson for everyone. The most important seems to show us that we shouldn't take life too seriously. He's a positive deity worshipped by the Navajo, Hopi, Zuni, and ancient Anasazi, and he brings good fortune and prosperity to anyone willing to listen to his songs. Cocapelli was often associated with friendly pranks and mischief. But it's important to note he was never destructive or mean-spirited in his pranks. They were always benign, like emptying someone's drink when they weren't looking or putting a song word on someone's head. And he used this mischief to benefit himself, sometimes tricking or seducing beautiful maidens into joining him in bed. <laughs> I'm gonna say it. No one's gonna be surprised. Zeus over here, like, I'm gonna become a swan and rape you. <laughs> and Coca Pelli over here, like, Here's a songbird on your head. Are you attracted to me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm going to play a flute and you're going to be so into it. You're going to join me in bed. And he get, he gets it. Like the difference between – okay. I'm going to jump into like the male gaze for a second. Do it. I've been goading you this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> People always talk about the male gaze and, you know, that's the idea of – think of James Bond where the woman comes out of the water in her bikini – and it's like that long slow motion shot. And in the newer James Bonds, they had James Bond coming out of the water in his swimsuit with the slow motion shot. And everyone's like, see, it's the female gaze. No, that is still the male gaze because it's how men believe women want to see men, not how women want to see men. The perfect example of the female gaze is Pride and Prejudice 2005 when Mr. Darcy holds Elizabeth's hand and lifts her into the carriage and it's that close-up shot of him flexing his hand because he can't believe he just touched her because that's such a big thing and it's, it's like not allowed. There's a lot of really good examples of the female gaze in a period piece in the new Little Women also, if you're yes, familiar absolutely. with that. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And that was directed by Sir Ronan, right? Oh, no. It was directed by Greta Gerwig, who always works with Sir Ronan. Mm, They're okay. like a great combo. Um and I was just reading earlier that really great scene in Little Women where Amy talks about marriage being an economic prospect for a woman because they have no opportunities. Even if you're married, all mm -hmm. your wealth, your children, everything belong to a man. I heard, and I, I can't confirm this because I was not there, and the Hollywood is filled with rumors, but apparently Meryl Streep recommended that that scene be put in so that modern audiences understood the position that Amy was in. And that was a really huge part mm. of sculpting, shooting how she viewed Laurie. And again, we're getting that female gaze. You cannot extract a women's place in society from the female gaze. Yes. So I love that we got to dive into the male and female gaze in talking about <laughs> Coco Pelli, the flute playing seducer god of very mild mischief i need you to know right now if you're about to tell a story where you debunk all this happiness i i will be so upset don't worry it's all happiness it's all it's all good it's just a story of him being a bro so let's jump into it <laughs> as frost begins to melt off the trees and the sun's rays reach the earth in a gentle kiss Cocopelli makes his way into the villages. He walks across the world and as spring begins to gently poke its head out, he welcomes the new life with a song. He journeys now into a small village filled with eager people awaiting his arrival. They gather in a cluster, huddled close and whispering amongst themselves. For some, this is a god they've seen before, a figure as old as their memory. 
For others, it's the first time they've seen him with their young eyes blinking in wonder up at the man that is Coco Pelli. A few tremble with fear or excitement. It's hard to say. Those few are the young maidens of the village waiting to learn if they will be chosen to lay with Coco Pelli. To be chosen is an honor, and to bear a child from the union is a gift from the god himself. For my mother, well, for her it was fate. The ending of a story so that a new one could be told. She'd known deep in her soul that she was to be chosen by Coco Pelli, and she could feel in that same soul that this was to be the year. So the village watched as he entered into town, hearkened by the sound of his flute as he approached. He walked into the village carrying a large sack on his back and a wide grin on his face. My mother held her head high even as her knees grew weak. This was the very same man she'd dreamt about for years, and any fear left her heart at that moment. The last dregs of uncertainty fled as his deep, rumbling laugh met her ears. He greeted the village warmly and hugged the children who swarmed around his legs like dogs searching for a treat. Indeed, he pulled out seeds from his bag and instructed the children to run to the fields as fast as they could to distribute them for planting. The children eagerly accepted the task of a god and rushed off to see who could plant the most seeds. Cocopelli smiled as the children ran off, and as he turned to face the villagers, his eyes landed upon my mother. He traced the curve of her mouth with his eyes, and she could feel them as though they were hands caressing her cheek. When her eyes met his, she felt a jolt of lightning course through her body, and she knew that she had been chosen. But first, before all else, there would be drinking, dancing, singing, and Coco Pelli's favorite of all, jokes. He particularly liked it when people could pull off a harmless prank on him. One villager switched his drink for water when he wasn't looking, and he nearly doubled over with surprise and laughter. He wasn't easy to fool, but it was always a good laugh when it was done well. He also liked to play matchmaker. While playing his flute, he would pair villagers up to dance, and he found a deep sense of joy in seeing their eventual union years later. He fancied himself an expert in such things, and in this case he was correct. As the drinking and the dancing and the laughter died down and villagers returned to their home to steal what little rest there was to be had, Cocopelli turned to my mother. They had danced and laughed together throughout the night, but now he said nothing for a long moment. He just gazed at her before asking gently, Would you join me? It was a question, not a trick, not a joke, and not a command. An offer. And she agreed without shame or hesitation. She took his hand and followed him into an empty tent. The next morning, as dawn stretched across the sky and Cocopelli left the village, the air was warmer. He played his flute as he walked away, and in his footsteps flowers bloomed in the early morning light. My mother placed her hand over her stomach and greeted me gently for the first time. She gave birth nine months later, and since the day I was born she has told me that I was a gift from Cocopelli himself. Every spring I thank the four winds that he chose her and that I was allowed to come into the being as the child of laughter and song. I'm sorry, did you just give me a sex-positive, consent-centered <laughs> romance with a god that included a hands shot? Oh my gosh, Tracy, I love. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> And that, my friends, is the female gaze. <laughs> right? It's it's so about how women, you know, it's the classic example of, like, guys think that a big, huge, buff dude is, like, the most attractive way a man can be. And women are like, no, I like Milo Thatch from Atlantis. 
<laughs> like, there's a difference between what men think women want and what women want. Well, yeah, and even, like, physical taste aside, there's also just, like, ah, you know what's sexy? <laughs> Consent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or, like, ah, you know what's sexy? Like, a, a man who has his shit together. Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just, like, a good person. Like, seeing you as a, a equal person. Like, that's pretty cool, you know? Nesting is a big one also. Mm, like, mm-hmm. j- like feather, like d- d- humans that are attracted to other humans running around, like, feathering their nest. Like, I, I put all these snacks here that you'll like, and, like, I made this nice, cozy <laughs> place for you. It's, it's, ah, Tracy, chef's kiss. You, everyone, you. podcast listeners, Tracy whispered in my ear, not unlike a little bird before we started. She was like, is this story... Uh, my best and I was like oh okay I'm sure it'll be great and I loved that that made my heart warm that was a balm for my soul a blizzard with heath as it were (laughs) your favorite kind of of icy treat (laughs) (laughs) so the version that I told you is a famous it's it's a spin on a famous version of the story where Coco Pelli comes to a village spreads the seeds for planting sings a song then chooses a maiden to lay with like I said earlier, in some versions, he actually carries the babies on his back. Um, others say that his manhood is a sign of his virility as a fertility god. And as I said before, any maiden who sleeps with him and has a child, the child has uh, supernatural powers. So that's pretty dope is all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's my scientific explanation. You want a maiden? Bring your supernatural powers, baby. <laughs> All right, so now it's time to talk about Cocopelli in modern media and culture. Hmm. Alexa Gotthard writes that, quote, Cocopelli's adoption by mainstream culture in the 1990s, the height of Cocopelli mania, as scholar Eckhart Malotki has dubbed it, was likely bolstered by the rise of new age thinking and ecological activism. These forces helped pave the way for acceptance of Cocopelli as a nostalgic icon of the noble savage. Maltaki has written, alluding to problematic issues of cultural appropriation that surround Cocopelli's popularity. Indeed, by the 90s, Cocopelli had joined the Great Spirit, Mother Nature, and Dreamcatchers as New Age trademarks, which symbolized a back-to-nature approach. Perhaps, as Malotki points out, a response to the tech boom and increasing reliance on computers and the internet. Cocopelli began showing up on t-shirts and magnets and was incorporated into logos for businesses ranging from organic food co-ops to Ayurvedic massage spots, end quote. God, gag me with essential oils. (laughs) Okay. Right? It's so, like, now that you know how amazing this god is, to just see him as a flute-playing dude on a t-shirt, it's like, (sighs) there's so much more. Here's the thing. I feel like... Tracy and I seem like the perfect audience for that particular brand of utter trash. Because and I was when I was twelve. Don't get don't don't get it twisted. Twelve to fifteen year old Tracy was like wearing a guitar pick around her neck, going into incense shops, and like all about that new age vibe with Dreamcatchers. It's just that you know, adult me sees that that is a problem. Here's the thing, y'all. Like like incense. Do like wear tie dye. I love me some tie dye, but like there is a strong difference between I love a good smell, I like artist made colorful t shirts, and 
I do not respect other people's cultures. Like, yes. <laughs> like, Tracy and I love a female earth deity, but this, like, quote-unquote mother nature that means nothing because it is an abstraction so that people can sell you quartz crystals is mm-hmm. not the same thing. No, it's it's a it's a commercialization of the appeal to ancient wisdom fallacy you see in all sorts of like modern uh, alternative medicine and spirituality where they're like, well, ancient Native Americans used these herbs in their rituals, and it's like, well, okay, that's just a way to sell me something. Yeah. So you can see that very much so in the contemporary depictions of Coco Pelli, which show him. Not with the hunched back, uh, with a sack full of seeds and songs, but like you said, bent over, jamming out on his flutes. And the lines that originally came out of his heads, which could have been antennae from the anthropomorphic bug representation or feathers, now resemble a mohawk or even dreadlocks. The image of Cocopelli became wildly commercialized and can be found on everything from skateboards to tattoos to thongs. Which actually, that last one does kind of fit with his vibe, if I'm not I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I do think that he would see the way he's drawn and be like, I don't look like that. Like, right. excuse me. Yeah, and it's not inherently bad. And it even makes sense given the fact that his silhouetted drawings, the ancient Cocopelli petroglyphs, are very simplistic. So it's easy to recognize this image and what it represents. And anthropologist Dennis Slifer writes that, to make the image safe for mass consumption, it has been emasculated and sanitized. And to me, therein lies the problem. One of his most identifying characteristics used to represent him as a fertility god has been stripped away, leaving us with a happy figure dancing to his flute instead of a powerful fertility and trickster god. So Rowan, below, I have two pictures. One is of that giant statue of Coco Pelli, famously outside of a Starbucks in Arizona, and the other one is an original, thousands of years old petroglyph cave drawing the big tell it's always the big tell tracy and i spend quite a lot of time thinking about this and trying to be very aware of this you have to follow the lead of the culture that these stories come from like Mm -hmm. like if it's your story you get to make the call on how it's commercialized those are the rules if especially when we're talking about closed religions and Mm -hmm. okay so (laughs) i am familiar with that original drawing because i pulled it when i was confirming that i was thinking of coco pelli like i googled (laughs) so i I am familiar with that cave drawing and yeah it, it is very interesting he does in fact have a phallus and he does have a a humped back or pack or you know whatever it is mm-hmm. in the way it is intact now you can see the hump shape mm-hmm. and yeah I, I have no clue what the feathers or antennae coming out of his head are but then we get this sculpture statue in Arizona and it is is he wearing clothes uh they're either clothes or tattoos it looks like he's got shoes like this is probably the most one of the most extreme examples of it being commercialized and really changed the standard picture you'll see of Coco Pelli if you ever search him is that black silhouetted 
drawing of the shape of the outline of him. This one I just chose because it's like, you can see the the black dreadlock looking spikes coming out of his hair. It looks like he's got clothes and shoes. And it's just a, such a far cry from the original depiction. Yeah, I really love Coco Pelli, the stories that you've told me. And uh, I feel like that statue did him dirty. Yeah. So in closing, I will say that Dennis Slifer states that Coco Pelli was... A fertility symbol, roving minstrel, traitor, rain priest, shaman, hunting magician, trickster, and seducer of maidens. And to me, that might just be the key to Coco Pelli's enduring popularity. Whether it's music, jokes, magic, food, or sex, Coco Pelli has something for everyone. He's a trickster god with a good sense of humor and a passion for having a good time. Coco Pelli's the guy that everyone wants at the party. This information, this story that you told just makes me want to keep learning more about Cocopelli. I came with basically nothing and I am now very excited. I love, he's a certified good guy TM. I love this dude. He's just a happy guy. Certified good guy. Certified good guy. So that's Cocopelli. I was so glad I got to talk to him and I got worried as I started researching him where I was like, he's not a trickster. But then I was like, you know what? I'm going to keep at this because I always thought of him as a trickster. He's always on everyone's top lists of trickster gods. And he's just this, like, fun, goofy frat bro. I mean, not really. But I love Cocopelli. He's got so much more going for him than being a trickster god. This was a fun episode. This was a fun episode. Researching it was awesome. Yeah. Writing it was a good time. It's, yeah, like, going from Medusa to this is, uh... <laughs> yeah, it was definitely, this was just a fun one. And I, it's so funny, the ones you think are, like we always say, the ones you think are going to be easy. Like, I thought Ra's journey through the underworld, I was like, this is a story I know so well. And then I was like, oh my god, I don't even know where to begin or where to end. I was so overwhelmed. And then I jumped into Coco Pelli and I was like, I don't know anything about Coco Pelli. This is going to be tough. Let's get started. And then it was just so much fun. I think most of Willing and Fable is Tracy and I texting each other, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. I don't know anything. Just just doing our best, I guess. We're just doing our best. <laughs> All right. So continuing the good vibes. Hey, Rowan. Yeah. Tell me something good. My something good. Happened actually very close to us recording this, and I'm pulling it right from today. Kaylee Bray, friend of Tracy and I. Love her. Love you, Kaylee. She texted me to say that she liked my blood oath, and if that doesn't just feel great. <laughs> Can you explain for people who might not know? So uh, I wrote chapter two of our series on the Wizard and the Rogue, and in it, uh, Rosalind and Thea make a blood oath, and Rosalind messes up because the wording on such things are very important, and mm -hmm. Kaylee, who comes from a similar tradition that I do where, you know, you have to ask for what you want very, very specifically when dealing with mythological creatures or the mm -hmm. universe she 
I was writing it with her in mind. So when she texted me to be like, <laughs> the wording on the blood oath, I was like, yes, I have arrived. <laughs> you did such a good job. That chapter set the bar so high that I have stayed up at night thinking no, about no. how I can do a good job in chapter three. No. I've got some ideas. I'm trying to be excited. I'm trying to be excited about myself. And as I'm doing it, I'm kind of chickening out, which is very funny. <laughs> you, <laughs> um, can do it. you can do it. Self-confidence, baby. Um, no, it's just you and I are experiencing this increasingly often. But having grown up with parents who are both artists, I have been familiar with it my whole life. But when you make art and someone takes the time to give you a very specific compliment on the work that you did Mm -hmm. it's not just oh you're so talented like you were divinely gifted an ability Mm. when people make specific comments that show you that they thought about it or they engaged with your work the way that you kind of were always hoping for then it just feels so good it is somewhat of a reminder that A, content and art don't exist in a vacuum. Right. And B, there is this kind of rule that to have art and content, it it has to be widely agreed upon that it is good for it to (laughs) continue to thrive. And despite that, those like one little messages, like... Lucy messaging us on Instagram and like Mm -hmm. Kaylee texting with like a a specific thought is those are like "Mm, little snuggle. I just want to snuggle those things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It really, I mean, and I can say it all day, every day, but it's different when it comes from someone else. But like really, truly that chapter, I wanted to sit down and keep reading and keep listening to like, I mean, editing it was amazing. Just you're so good, and it's so inspiring that I get to work with you. Oh, thank you. My lovely mother called, and she said, I really like the sound effects. Tracy did so well. Can I have more? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, Mom. <laughs> you have no idea. Tra- the only reason these episodes exist is because Tracy edits them into submission. <laughs> yeah, with sound effects, you get what you get, and you don't get upset. That's that's the sound effects. <laughs> Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, I. It's only for you. It's for all of you that I listen to a database of squelching and thwacking. <laughs> so because Tracy and I live on opposite coasts, we have a three-hour time difference. And <laughs> I, I tend to work very late and don't exist in the morning. So it, the idea is that for like five hours of the day, I text her messages at night that she won't receive until she wakes up. And then mm-hmm. for five hours of the morning, she texts mm-hmm. me messages that I won't receive. So when she edits those episodes, I just receive so many cryptic little messages about <laughs> sounds. <laughs> it is so, it is just so silly and charming. <laughs> I have hundreds of sounds saved in my computer now of like crack, thwack, thwack with reverb, crunch, boot crunch, squelch. How do you name them? Like that. Yeah, but how do you know which thwack is the thwack of choice? 
Um, Rowan, I don't know that I do, is the answer. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I do, because I've got um, body hit the floor, chain clank small, chain echo, dagger metallic sound, fire go whoosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's really called fire go whoosh. That's what I called it, yeah. You know which sound effects are related to things you and I will be bringing back because of the names. Like, yes. knife metallic <laughs> sound tells you that there will be more knives. Oh, and that was just one of them. I've got dagger in sheath. I've got sword in sheath. I've got metal clang. I've got two swords clanging. I'm ready. Here's the problem. And sorry, not sorry. But because we've now learned about... Certified good guy, Coco Pelli, with his flute. There's gonna have to be a certified good guy with a flute. And that means you might have to find flute sounds. I'm up for the challenge. For you and for Coco Pelli, I will do it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now that I've destroyed your soul talking about sound effects, Tracy, do tell me something good. My something good is in a similar vein of just enjoying the things you make with people. We had a pretty impromptu Twitch stream, and we had a bunch of our patrons and listeners jump on and engage with us, and Rowan gave me my favorite gift I've ever gotten, which is that she not only let but encouraged me to geek out about the X-Men with everyone for like 30 straight minutes. Knowing nothing, like knowing it was all going over her own head, she still said, I love seeing you be happy. I want to see you do this. And to be able to talk to so many people about that, one was amazing, but in a space where I wasn't questioned for my knowledge or it wasn't like, oh, do you really like the X-Men? Like, you know, which ones have you read? And like, it was just this energy of all of us being like, yo, like, look at Dazzler. Dazzler is so cool. And what, what do you think about Logan? And oh my God, Nightcrawler. Like, it was just really fun. It made It made my week. If you all ever get the opportunity to be around your best friend when their <laughs> eyes light up with enthusiasm for something like that, it it will give you back five years of your life, I swear. <laughs> and I, I oh, Twitch, Twitch loves to try to kill me. So that kind of made up for, for honestly, me and technology having arguments but (laughs) the amount that i don't know about x-men is staggering and i got to kind of reap some of your joy because Mm -hmm. you translated so coolly to me the non-mockery like you made sure that i when i asked the guys i asked about like really what an action figure is like girl no it's fair it's a fair question no one was judgmental and no. when i was like i like the outfits because what the heck else am i gonna say y'all i don't even really know what an x-men is um everyone was like yeah the outfits um shout out to akota roku who started sending rowan the hellfire gala outfits when she said <laughs> she likes outfits yeah that was really cool and also The one memory that I have of X-Men is when I was very young, getting like an X-Men McDonald's toy. And I don't think it was like a current McDonald's toy. Like, I think it was one of those things where you go to an antique mall and you buy Mm, a McDonald's toy for a dollar. And it was Rogue. Mm -hmm. And someone told me it was Rogue. And I was like, 
emo girl with gloves. <laughs> and someone was like, Roke. And I was like, Roke, emo girl with gloves. And I remember just being so made fun of by a boy. I don't remember who it was, but for not really knowing what X-Men was. was and I was just like, emo doll. <laughs> and they just shamed me. And I was never into it as a kid. I, you know, I didn't get into X-Men and comic books until college. Yeah. And like I cashed out on X-Men after that. And so I've never gotten to really be around you in that kind of world. Um, and mm-hmm. it was really exciting to see and learn a little. And a lot of it for me was in one ear out the other. But the enthusiasm was not. It was a de- Light. I we can Twitch stream about X Men anytime you want. Get you a best friend who just loves seeing you happy. Because a lot of people don't. A lot of people are like, "Oh, I don't understand what's going on. You shouldn't talk about that." And you were just. I kept apologizing, being like, "We can talk about something else." And you're like, "No, keep going." And it just made it made my week. I, I, you are very much like this. And I would have said that it's an only child thing, but you are like the opposite of an only child. Many siblings. Right. I'm very content to sit and say nothing while people are enthusiastic around me. Like, mm-hmm. it, I don't I'm the same. feel... Yeah, what? Like, it's... I think it's an introvert thing. I think it's a, an introvert who likes to observe the world. I love watching people be enthusiastic and talk about things so I can just sit and take in the information, but also take in them as people. Mm, that's a good point. Give me happy slices. Give me other people's enthusiasm. <laughs> All right, I think we did it. I think we did it. Tracy and I received a lot of serotonin from Anansi and Cocopelli, and we hope you did too. Yeah, so thank you for joining us today, and remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? thank you so much for joining us for the willing and fable podcast this episode was written and produced by tracy harrison and rowan hall that's me our music was written and performed by taylor ash and our logo is by jamie harrison If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.